An hour and 15 minutes for this presentation, I just want to let you know, doesn't necessarily do it justice. Uh, I, in preparation for this talk, I looked at all of the studies that I had saved on my computer that are meaningful in regards to memory and intelligence over the last 10 years, and there were 4,026 studies. Uh, and, uh, and so it's, um, and to be honest with you, there's a lot of exciting ones I'm leaving out. You know, you have to, uh, you have to kind of pick and choose and try to prioritize and, and also know your audience. Um, knowing that this is an ASI audience, there's other things that I would talk about if it were general public audience that I'm not going to bring up uh, in this audience, et cetera, because I'm trying to see what the uh, typical person uh, would need to, um, to take away from this. But... Uh, uh, many of you uh, have heard, or at least some of you have heard, how one of my hobbies, it actually is one of my hobbies, to keep up with the medical literature. Uh, to me, it's a, um, it's a spiritual experience to, um, uh, to understand more expressions of truth. Uh, the author of truth is, is of course, our Lord. Amen. And as we uh, understand more truth, uh, we actually understand more about him and more about his character. And so uh, it's always been a, a great hobby of mine to, uh, to keep up with the uh, uh, medical literature. And that's where those 4,026 studies came from that, uh, uh, that we're just uh, getting, thank you, that we're just getting a little uh, glimpse of here today. Okay. Okay. All right. We've also, um, uh, many of you uh, know us from our depression recovery uh, programs. And of course, this is, um, um, I didn't, those 4,026 studies didn't really have to do with depression. I was just taking a look at memory and intelligence. And of course, there's a little bit of overlap. What seems to help depression seems to help memory and intelligence as well in general. And so uh, there's a lot of uh, a significant overlap. And what we have done actually is put on residential programs for um, peak mental performance uh, as well. Um, and uh, we've had some significant uh, uh, positive effects as a result of that. One of the great myths is that intelligence can't be enhanced after age 18. And uh, it actually can be enhanced. And we've had individuals with IQs that are in the, the, the bottom 5 to 10 percentile of the country uh, come to our peak mental performance program who really couldn't even kind of make it through Mission College in six months. Um, and of course, you know, there's academics with Mission College, there's college credits, et cetera, or AFCO. Uh, but then after coming to that program and implementing the principles of that program, um, within two to three years, they were actually applying for and getting into medical schools uh, throughout the country. And so uh, intelligence can be enhanced uh, significantly. And uh, fortunately, memory can as well. So uh, let's uh, just get into a definition. Intelligence is your capacity to learn, retain, and apply knowledge. Can't hear. Well, I don't have the volume, but I will try to move this up, maybe. Let's 
see if I can even do that here. Oh, he's turning it up? Good. All right, thank you. <clears throat> Capacity to learn, retain, and apply knowledge. And notice, a lot of people don't think intelligence is necessarily connected to memory, but actually it is because you have to not only learn it, but you also have to retain it. And in order to apply it, you have to have it retained as well. Is that good for people in the back? Can you hear that? All right, good, I hear uh, the nods there. It's often measured by an intelligence quotient test or an IQ test. That's kind of the world's best standard for measuring it. And it's not a bad standard, but it's not a perfect standard. Uh, and there are uh, significant instances where it missed people of high intelligence, and it also missed uh, people that were of lower intelligence that scored better uh, on the tests. And of course, it's related somewhat to academic performance. It's not related across the board to academic performance because one of the greatest um, factors in academic performance is actually emotional intelligence. Uh, emotional intelligence is related to motivation. IQ has nothing to do with motivation. Uh, and uh, so if you have a highly motivated individual with average IQ, they can af actually excel. Uh, and um, uh, that's something to uh, keep in mind. And of course, we all get frustrated when we know people have high intelligence, but they're not very successful in life. And that's simply uh, due to the EQ aspect of things. Now, I've previously talked at ASI seminars about emotional intelligence. This meeting is not about EQ, so you might want to get into the archives and get to the, uh, to the EQ portion. College graduates' first job after graduation in this world is found to be linear related to their IQ. And so uh, the higher the IQ, the better their job tends to be right out of college. However, how far they advance in that job is not related to their IQ. Once they get it, it's related to their emotional intelligence again. Uh, and not the IQ part. And people with very high IQ who've been passed over for, for promotion repeatedly have told me that the reason why they're passed over is because the bosses in their workplace don't have a high enough IQ to recognize their IQ. Uh, <laughs> and uh, in reality, that's not the reason. Uh, their quotient is being recognized, but what's being recognized for promotion is the emotional quotient uh, side of things and not so much the IQ uh, side of things. Uh, there are some advantages of IQ that are significant. Uh, this was a uh, study um, in uh, Scotland, 862 men and women, followed from childhood, starting in 1922 until 1986. I like these long, longitudinal studies. They're very revealing. In fact, there needs to be a lot more in regards to parental techniques uh, and the long-term effects of those parental techniques. That's, uh, that's an area of study that's just starting to be discovered, uh, but there's a lot more that could be done. Researchers found that up to the cutoff point of 163, participants' risk of dying during a given period decreased as their IQ increased. For example, those with a childhood IQ of 150 had a 44% lower risk of death than those with an IQ of 135. And I'm sorry for the screen, I just noticed that we're probably not going to be able to see the entire references uh, of all of these studies since I tend to have the references at the bottom of the screen. And the bottom of the screen, you have to be up front to read 
uh, those uh, because of the black barrier there. But IQ is very much related to longevity. In fact, a number of studies are indicating this and they're, they're taking a look at that factor. They're not exactly sure why it's related to longevity. However, there are some revealing studies, some of which I did not put in today, that are, that are start, starting as to, to give us a clue why IQ is related to longevity. It's not completely related to this next uh, study, but this is one of the reasons uh, for it. Children with high IQs are more likely to become vegetarians when they grow up. So if you have a high IQ as a child, you're more likely to become a vegetarian. Study of more than 8,000 men and women, age 30, whose IQs have been measured when they were 10, showed that the higher the IQ, the greater the odds of becoming a vegetarian. For each 15-point rise in IQ in the study, the likelihood of becoming a vegetarian rose by 38%, even after adjusting to factors such as social class, education, the link was still consistent. And uh, so the higher your IQ is, the more likely you are to respond to intelligent information and, of course, apply it. Remember, the intelligence is your ability to learn, retain, and apply knowledge. And so uh, sometimes, you know, you don't have a lot of time. People will notice that you're a vegetarian and they might ask you, um, why are you a vegetarian? If you don't have a lot of time, you can just give them the short two-word two answer, high IQ. Now, uh, IQ uh, in children, this is a summary of a number of studies. This is very critical, how long they were in the womb before birth. In fact, um, this is something that's being uncovered. The IQ in our country and in the Western world is significantly declining, average IQ, generation after generation. In fact, this has been going on for for some time, we're not sure of all the reasons for it. Some of it just might be the, you know, the deterioration of the race uh, over time. Uh, but for instance, the Roman Empire, uh, there's pretty good solid evidence that the average IQ of the average individual during the Roman Empire time was 140. And that's up in the top one percentile of our country today. And so the people that were studying and where the Book of Romans was being written to had IQs of 140, and thus they didn't have the confusion about that book that uh, many of us have today <laughs> with significantly lower IQs. Uh, but um, it, is, um, it is something that's also declining simply due to the fact that there are more babies surviving uh, that, whose brains have not been, had the advantage of being fully developed uh, in the womb. We used to think that the lungs were the last thing to develop in the fetus. Uh, we now know that's not true. It's the brain that's the last thing to develop. And after 36 weeks, it was often thought of as elective whether you get that baby out or not. And sometimes the, the baby was coming out just due to the convenience of the mother as well as the convenience of the physician. And it was thought, well, you know, it's 37, 38 weeks around there, that's good enough. We know the lungs are developed. Uh, we can go ahead and take this baby out or induce or whatever. And uh, we now know that uh, that has been a mistake uh, in, uh, in the IQ studies in particular. Uh, studies will um, show that 38 weeks is the critical uh, time period. Now, after 40, it can be uh, problematic because the longer you wait after 40 weeks, the longer or the higher the risk of stillbirth uh, of the child. 
but um, you certainly want to uh, try to wait till 40 weeks. And the problem is the medical world is not totally up on when the 40 week period is. Uh, often we go by dates, but uh, the ultrasound, we tend to look at that, what seems to be the appropriate weight, et cetera, and the size, and we think, well, it looks like it's getting close. It's probably 38, 39 weeks. It's okay to induce, and then we induce and find out the baby weighs five pounds and was probably more like 35 or 36 weeks, and un unfortunately, the IQ of that child has been uh, adversely affected uh, for the remainder of his life or her life. And so now, not to say that if you were born at 36 weeks, you're going to be mentally retarded and not be able to excel in school. Uh, that's not the case. Um, you can uh, actually compensate for that uh, to some degree, but the studies are showing not completely. Also very much related to IQ in children is how much omega-3 was in their mother's diet uh, when they were in the womb. This is a crucial brain development nutrient. It is an essential nutrient, and it's a particularly essential for brain development. And uh, we'll go into uh, more about omega-3 uh, in some of the studies. Also very much related, how much love, care, and caressing they received uh, as an infant. And uh, somewhat related to that is whether they were breastfed or not. We know that the breastfeeding um, provides more omega-3 for the developing brain after birth uh, because there's only one formula on the market now that has omega-3 in it and it's only one type of omega-3 called DHA. Um, and it's not a fish-based DHA, it's a plant-based DHA because that's the only one the FDA would approve for good reason. Why are, the, why are they not approving the fish-based DHA? That's right, because of mercury. And you can't get the mercury uh, completely out of fish oil. Now, you see these, these supplements that say mercury-free fish oil? Not true. Uh, one company, of course, omega-3 you can't patent. That's one of the other difficulties uh, of it. If, if omega-3 could be patented, uh, it would be the most expensive um, antidepressant on the market by far and the most, in, uh, the most expensive brain-enhancing medication on the market by far, uh, simply because it is so effective. It helps 70% of people with treatment-resistant depression alone. Uh, it also helps adolescents get higher GPA scores. It helps them in focus and attention. It helps them in a number of different uh, areas. Uh, but the reason why it can't be patented it's a, is because it's in nature. And so if you try to patent omega-3, the government will send you a nice letter back saying uh, prior art. However, uh, one company has figured out a way to charge a very large amount of their omega-3 and have it available by prescription. And what they did is they patented the process of mercury removal from the fish. Uh, and so it's a three-step, very involved um, process of taking fish oil and trying to remove the, um, the mercury from it. And it's patented now. It's actually available only by prescription. Uh, the brand name is Lobeza. Uh, but uh, the, the nice-looking pharmaceutical representative who's been coming by my office to try to get me to prescribe more Lobeza, uh, I've said, you know, I know this is supposed to remove the toxins in the mercury. Can you tell me how much mercury has been taken out of it? 
Well, we know most of the mercury has been taken out. What about all the mercury? Well, you know, maybe all. I said, well, can you talk to your researchers there and have them send me a letter about how much mercury is out of this product? And they did. They sent me a nice letter. They have to do that. It's one of those government regulations if you have an FDA by prescription only. And so they sent me a nice letter saying, no, not all the mercury is out, and there's no way we can get all the mercury out, but we know we're getting more mercury out than any other way of getting mercury out. And, uh, and so um, this is, um, you know, of course, this is the best we can do with fish oil. And I think that's, that's pretty accurate, and that's why they're, uh, they're charging such a high premium for that. However, what the general public is overlooking is you can get less mercury from getting it simply from the plants of the waters. And this is where you can get DHA, EPA, the same oils that are in fish oil from plants of the waters. And of course, those companies, since they're getting it from the plants of the waters, uh, it's not by prescription, it's not expensive, it's actually very inexpensive. So if you want to get omega-3 supplements, I would recommend getting uh, like V-Pure or Vegan DHA. V-Pure has both the EPA and the DHA uh, in it, uh, et cetera. And it can be helpful if you need to have the omega-3 uh, supplemented. Now, what, uh, what is in breastfeeding formula, the one formula that has it, is the Vegan DHA. Uh, and again, it's not the EPA, which it would be better to have uh, the EPA as well as ALA and DHA. Educational environment in the child is also uh, critically important. And uh, of course, that has to do with the home, because education begins in the home. And uh, uh, what type of stimulation is there, what type of a learning environment for the child is critically important in regards to their IQ. And whether it's consistent discipline uh, in the home environment as well. Uh, one of the uh, big factors is a, no, a, a house without any discipline is going to adversely affect both the EQ and especially I should say both the IQ and especially the EQ of the developing child. If you don't have discipline, you're going to very much adversely affect the EQ. Uh, but it also adversely affects the uh, IQ, and the consistency is one of the um, terms that's coming out as critically important in the studies. And then also, there's an interesting relationship between children that were born into a household of economy, self-sacrifice, and gladsome service. Uh, all three of those seem to be critically important in regards to the developing brain. One of the reasons why, in many cases, doctors' kids do not come out on top in regards to IQ. You know, their mother and father might be both doctors. Um, you know they've got great genetics, and what's happening to the kids? You know, they're just, uh, they're not excelling, they're not having that same type of uh, thing. Uh, well, what was happening is they were born into a household where they were pretty much given everything that they wanted, and they didn't have to struggle for finances, uh, et cetera, uh, and there wasn't really that spirit of self-sacrifice, and because of the busyness of the parents, et cetera, they didn't always have that gladsome service uh, exhibited as well. And so uh, one of the reasons why sometimes pastor's kids and doctor's kids and some high, high professionals have problems. And of course, we noticed even in the Israelite world that uh, some great people um, had kids that were not near as great uh, and, uh, and had major problems. And a lot of it goes back into that household. You know, I think of um, even um, Jacob's sons. Uh, Jacob's sons uh, were raised pretty much in a dysfunctional environment. And one of the things that, uh, that I think Jacob will realize in the kingdom is 
that if his lovely Rachel did not die, Rachel would have raised Joseph. As a result of Rachel dying, uh, Jacob got out of the field, put the work on his sons, and personally became responsible for the upbringing of Joseph and Benjamin. And uh, we know the outcome uh, in regards to that. Uh, and so, uh, and of course, Jacob was exhibiting uh, those types of, uh, of attributes that Rachel, not that Rachel was a real bad person per se, but we know the, the competition, the dysfunction, they were all, you know, uh, the, the types of games that they were playing in the household that had nothing to do with the outcome of the children, et cetera. And, uh, and that, of course, paid a toll. And uh, fortunately, those other brothers came around, but it was really through them having to take responsibility and work that started their process of, uh, of turning around. Uh, young rats who receive more attention from their mothers perform better on tests of learning and memory, such as being able to find their way through a maze and offspring who were licked and groomed less. This type of spatial learning and memory is associated with the part of the brain called the hippocampus. Now you'll see that term multiple times. That has to do with the memory portion of the brain and the temporal lobe. Later analysis of the brains of the two groups of offspring, the rats who had high care mothers versus those who had low care moms, show that the offspring of high care mothers had more synapses or connections between brain cells in their hippocampus along with more inputs from other parts of the brain involved in learning. And so, of course, we know that this is even probably more true in regards to uh, human upbringing than it is in regards to um, animals. Also an encouraging point for those who, who may have had low birth weight and a little prematurity. Well, no, this is going to be the next study. But children who were small for gestational age scored three to points lower in verbal and nonverbal IQ than with an average birth weight. It turns out for every week less than 38 weeks, your IQ goes down by uh, an average of two points, maybe a little more, but I think uh, two is about uh, where it's at. So 36 weeks, you're going to have about a uh, four point, maybe a little more uh, IQ decrease. And as it uh, continues to go down, you continue to see that. So if you have a 25-week baby, uh, you can see the significant difference. However, parental factors dominated almost completely overweight at birth when it came to predicting a child's IQ. So again, although we place a lot of emphasis and a lot of studies are placing a lot of emphasis on, on carrying that baby to term now uh, to try to enhance its IQ, uh, just as important, if not more important, are parental um, factors, such as the health habits of the parents, their mother's problem-solving ability, and parental rearing style dominated in influencing uh, child IQ. And this is from the Archives of Disease in uh, Childhood in 2000. Back a little bit more to uh, omega-3, I got a little ahead of myself. Omega-3 fats appeared uh, to prevent neurodegenerative disorders, including Alzheimer's uh, disease. Uh, these devastating illnesses are associated with decreased brain blood flow. Animal models suggest that compromised brain circulation contributes to the genesis of dementia. It is not merely the result of brain deterioration. Omega-3 fats may be particularly helpful in improving brain circulation and preventing blood vessel changes. And there's even studies showing it can have a positive role in regards to uh, Parkinson's uh, disease as well, particularly if it's early enough. Uh, low omega-3 induced hippocampal effects is a tenfold rise, I should say among omega-3 induced hippocampal effects is a tenfold rise in the production of transthyretin. 
TTR is vital to long-term brain health by scavenging up or rounding up something called amyloid beta protein, the compound that accumulates in tangles in Alzheimer brains. By gathering up these abnormal proteins, TTR is believed to prevent the damaging amyloid tangles or aggregates, thus potentially staving off dementia. And of course, it's important to recognize the omega-3, in fact, when we get to Alzheimer's, and I'm going to hopefully have some time to discuss this in quite a bit of detail because it's a major, it's going to be a major future problem in our country. Uh, millions of individuals uh, by 2025, uh, far more than have it today. There's about 4 million that have it today but it's going to be uh, probably 25, 30 million individuals uh, that have it uh, by 2025. It's critically important to know how to prevent it and uh, also potentially how to treat it. But when it comes to Alzheimer's, the best we can do at this point is to halt the progression of it. And this is why it's critically important to recognize it early on. Uh, there are, um, uh, well, let me, just, uh, let me just leave it at that and go back to omega-3. These are plant foods that have omega-3, um, almonds, spinach, uh, green soy has it. Mature soybeans have it, but not near as much as the green soy, one of the advantages of green soy. Uh, wheat germ, if you're having white bread, you're not getting the omega-3. Uh, black walnuts, English walnuts have even more. Chia seeds are near the top of the list. Flaxseed is up there as well. And uh, these foods have a type of omega-3 called ALA. That is the land plant form of omega-3. Alpha linolenic acid is what it stands for. There's three types of omega-3 molecules that the brain needs, however. ALA and EPA and DHA. Uh, Dr. Frazier has done some preliminary research in Loma Linda and has shown that vegetarians um, have a high conversion rate of ALA to at least DHA and probably EPA as well. In other words, if we have ALA, we can make the other two. However, the typical meat-eating population does not convert ALA very efficiently to EPA and DHA. And that's one of the reasons why they t talk so strongly of fish and why Lobeza is selling like hotcakes uh, at a couple hundred dollars a month. Um, uh, prescription is to quote to get the um, the EPA and the DHA uh, without so much of the mercury or toxins that are present uh, in fish today. However, if you're a plant-based vegetarian, you're going to convert more. And uh, and of course, the big unknown out there in the world is that fish don't make EPA and DHA. They have to get it from their plant um, foods. Uh, or at least other fish that have eaten those plant foods. And so um, that's, uh, that's where you can get the, the lower toxicity rate, is getting it uh, from the plants of the uh, waters. Now there's also a relationship here between omega-6 and omega-3. Omega-6 is another essential fat, but it's present in the human diet in, if you're just eating food in general, you're gonna get plenty of omega-6, particularly if you're eating uh, animal foods. Uh, or um, plant foods with a lot of fat. Uh, this research is one chapter, a growing body of literature linking low intake of omega-3 fats with manic depressive illness. As with the circulatory effect of omega-3s, it appears the ratio of omega-6 to omega-3 consumption is important in the mental health uh, arena. High blood levels of omega-6 fats, as well as low omega-3 levels, appear to predispose towards depression, bipolar disorder, and dementia. And so 
our problem in our society is we're getting too much of the omega-6s and not enough of the omega-3s, and that's because there isn't as enough omega, I mean, there aren't a lot of foods that are high in omega-3, and there are a lot more foods that are high in the omega-6. This was a, another recent study. Common dietary fat found in margarine, butter, and cheese may increase the risk of mental decline in old age. A uh, study of elderly men concluded that those who had high, higher daily intakes of linoleic acid, that's the omega-6, were two and a half times more likely to have cognitive impairment than those who had lower intakes of the dietary fat. And so that's a significant, you know, anything that's 20 or 40 percent increased risk is enough to, to publish a study. But when you have a two and a half fold increased risk, um, that is, is significant. And I think it underscores one of the reasons um, why some even healthy, quotes, otherwise healthy vegetarians can start to experience cognitive impairment. Uh, one of the reasons may be not just enough omega-3, but too much of the omega-6s that are present primarily in a lot of um, the foods that tend to satisfy on the vegetarian arena, which are going to be more of your high fat uh, types of foods and particularly uh, foods that have the free uh, oils in them. Uh, this is one um, graph that takes a look at the ratio between omega-3 and omega-6. And you can see the walnuts um, have omega-3 in them, but they have actually more of the omega-6. It's not until you get to flaxseed that you have a much more omega-3 to omega-6, or, and spinach even has a higher ratio. So spinach is one of the foods we, uh, we recommend because of its very favorable ratio of omega-3 to omega-6. And of course, fish, this is uh, fish up here, the fish that's highest in it. Um, in omega-3 is mackerel, and this is the fish that has the highest ratio, 8.0. But if you're getting your omega-3 from plants of the waters, you'll get better than 8.0. Uh, and, uh, and so again, underscoring uh, the advantage of the uh, plants in the waters. Well, let's take a look as far as steps in memory. A lot of this in regards to IQ has to do with memory, and of course I'm lumping both of these in uh, together today. But let's just focus on memory itself. There's three steps in memory. The first one is encoding. That's the process of holding information in the brain's short-term memory systems for 20 to 30 seconds. And of course, this involves paying attention to the material to be remembered uh, as a uh, crucial factor. A lot of sensory information can bombard the brain at any moment, sometimes from all five senses uh, when you're learning. And all of these messages register in the brain, but only those with meaning and importance are selected for placement into memory. If you just think about it as you're sitting here right now, you're probably getting about a thousand different sensory inputs at one time. How much pressure is on your left cheek in regards to your right cheek? Uh, whether your toes are on the ground or whether your heels are on the ground. Uh, you know, whether it's a soft seat or not, or what, um, you know, um, uh, who is in your periphery and those colors that are coming in, plus the, the words that I'm saying, plus what's on the screen, uh, plus maybe some whispering and some, uh, some rustling of the papers, et cetera. So you're, there's a whole lot of information coming in. If we were to analyze it, just sitting in a classroom like this, probably 500 to 1,000 points that your brain is actually able to pick up on. But hopefully you don't remember all those things. Uh, in fact, um, you know, you shouldn't really remember anything except the meaningful things, uh, and that's part of the encoding part. 
uh, encoding uses different ways to process using different ways to process information increases the chance that the information will be encoded and placed into memory. Encoding is enhanced when the information is associated with other information already stored in the brain. And this is one of the advantages of those that have a good memory to begin with. Uh, if they have remembered a lot, they're actually more likely to remember more. One of the old myths out there in regards to memory is that you only have so much space in your long-term memory. And so um, we have to limit what's in there, and we may want to dump some things so that we can get some more things in. Uh, and that actually isn't true in regards to long-term memory. Long-term memory uh, seems to almost be infinite in regards to our storage capacity in the brain. And one of the reasons I'll, I'll point out, but one of the reasons is memory of things, even faces, et cetera, involve just one single neuron where this is stored. So, so the, uh, the complexity of one single neuron to be able to recognize one face versus another face, and it's just one neuron there. And of course, we have 100 billion, um, that's a conservative estimate, neurons in the brain. And we have, um, of course, uh, a lot more cells that we used to think are not involved in thought processes, such as the glia, et cetera, that are also there. So uh, that long-term storage capacity definitely is, uh, is very impressive. But in regards to encoding, this is where our limitation is uh, in, the, uh, in our brain. We only have the ability to hold something in memory for 20 to 30 seconds. It's probably only three to seven things that are going to end up uh, in the long-term memory. When information is processed in both visual and verbal modalities, encoding is enhanced. It's one of the reasons why I like to just put the words up on the screen, even though I'm saying them, et cetera. Studies show if you're hearing them and seeing them, you're actually more likely to take that from encoding and put it into your permanent memory where you can utilize it later on. Sensory images are retained for less than a second, just long enough to develop a perception. Not quickly encoded into short-term memory, this information will immediately decay and be forgotten. And of course, that's a good thing. Those are all those sensory images that you're getting in right now that hopefully you won't remember five years from now. Uh, remembering a new phone number, however, um, also involves this. We have to remember it long enough to dial it, and that means more than a second. Uh, we have to be able to encode that and be able to uh, have it there for um, about uh, 30 seconds or so. And the encoding of most brains, the limit of it is normally seven items. That's one of the advantages of a seven-digit phone number. Uh, but it turns out we can actually put more than seven items in if we categorize or chunk the information. That's one of the reasons why we can remember phone numbers more if we say three and then three and then four. Um, we're actually chunking, and so we can easily remember 10 items enough to be able to put it in your working memory and then store it in your phone or write it down, uh, et cetera, you know, or remember it even long term if you rehearse it enough. Some psychologists consider working memory to be the new IQ because we find that working memory is the single most important predictor of learning. So the single most important predictor of learning is what? Working memory. That's that area where we have that limitation in regards to how much we can hold in it for about 30 seconds. Working memory allows people to hold and manipulate a few items in their mind, such as a telephone number. Some compare working memory to a box. 
For adults, the basic box size is thought to be three to seven items. People who have more than that on a mental grocery list are likely to forget something, studies show. So uh, if you don't have it written down, um, and you have more than seven items on that grocery list, studies show it's a very high likelihood, probably 95% of individuals will forget one or more items if it goes more than seven, unless you have the ability to chunk it where you're categorizing you know, the vegetables. All right, we need four vegetables, all right, and we're gonna get five fruit and we're gonna get five things in cans, et cetera, and then you can start doing more than that. But even if your categories go more than seven, uh, you're then uh, very likely to forget something. Since there is this limit, it's important to put in the right thing. Irrelevant information will clutter up working memory, uh, studies show. Working memory allows a reader to remember what is at the beginning of the page when reaching the end of the page. People that have trouble with active working memory get lost in the middle. Memory training has been shown to be able to help improve working memory. Many people with poor working memory are considered lazy or dim, but with early identification and memory training, many of these underachievers can improve, uh, studies show. And uh, in reality, this is the major problem when it comes to ADHD, uh, which is the attention deficit. The problem there is the working memory is being cluttered by things that are not meaningful. And so thus it fills up and there's an inability for them to remember what's at the end of the page or remember what was at the beginning of the page when they get to the end of the page and thus they can't put the logical sequence uh, together. And of course, of course studies show that certain dietary things like omega-3 uh, can be helpful. Uh, certain lifestyle things can be very helpful that we'll get into, but also the actual work of memory training uh, to be able to uh, train yourself to encode information that is meaningful and leave out information uh, that is not meaningful. Now, once this encoding occurs, then consolidation um, can happen. And consolidation is when the memory is put into that long-term bank. Uh, that, that is a bank that actually uh, can last. When encoded information is practiced or rehearsed, or when it has a high emotional content and meaning, the information can be transferred into long-term memory by that process called consolidation. And notice the two things, two categories of things that cause it to go to consolidation. One is high emotional content and meaning, or the other is practicing and rehearsing it. And so if it doesn't have a whole lot of meaning for you, you can still get it there into consolidated long-term memory by practice, uh, practicing it and, and rehearsing it. Much of this consolidation occurs in the hippocampus during REM sleep. And this is why sleep is a critical part for consolidation. And, uh, and we also know melatonin is very connected with that ability to get the REM sleep and for consolidation to occur. We'll talk about that uh, in, the, in the near future. Sleep deprivation, uh, the reduction of REM can lead to deficits and consolidation of long-term memories. And this is why um, uh, it's critically important. In fact, one of the ways in which you can find out how sleep deprived you are uh, is to um, uh, actually be cognizant of when you are going into REM sleep, uh, even though you're sleeping. For instance, someone who's significantly sleep deprived as a result of that sleep deprivation will actually try to go into REM sleep within minutes, sometimes seconds of going to sleep. It's not a healthy thing. 
it means that you're very sleep deprived. Normally it'll take 90 minutes for you to go into REM sleep. You'll have to go through about uh, three or four stages and then get to that REM sleep and that's the healthy way of doing it. But for those of you, sometimes if you're very sleep deprived, and this has happened to me, you know, I'm a, I'm a physician and there's times when I've had to be up all night taking care of ICU patients and then up the whole next day. And then I might have to go to a meeting that evening and be sitting in a chair such as you are at in and then I will um, start to nod off and while I'm nodding off, REM is where dream sleep occurs, I'll actually be dreaming of something in the room with something happening that's not even connected to that room at all. That's a sign of significant sleep deprivation. You're gonna have significant problems consolidating anything and it'd be far better for you to go get adequate rest than it would be to try to sit through that meeting uh, at that point in time. And so, uh, uh, that's just one example in regards to, um, to that sleep deprivation, how quickly you dream after you, um, after you go to sleep. Long-term memory is usually permanent, and I say usually, the only reason why it wouldn't be is if you've had head injury or you've had a stroke to an area affecting memory or if you have had what's called ECT, shockwave treatment, or if you have repeated epilepsy, you know that of course shockwave treatment is induced seizures to the brain. But uh, repeated seizures, of course, can produce permanent um, memory gaps in the long-term memory. You won't even have that, um, uh, that ability to retrieve that memory because it's just totally gone from there. And of course, that's one of the disadvantages of ECT. That's one of the reasons why people come to our program as a last result, r resort when they're depressed instead of going to ECT, uh, many of them, because they don't want to have that, those memory deficits. The meaning and effectiveness of retrieving the information uh, tends to be diminished or lost over time. So it's not because it's not there. It's just that your ability to retrieve the information tends to be diminished or lost when you're not utilizing that memory. Uh, and of course, that, that produces its own significant problems. Rehearsing or repeatedly practicing and reciting the information can help to shift the information from short-term to long-term memory and increased meaningfulness of the information also enhances uh, the long-term storage. And so um, uh, I think this is one of the reasons why in scripture uh, the Lord wanted these principled types of instruction that may not have a lot of emotion and meaning to at least children they're growing up be able to be there so they could be rehearsed and practiced and talked about frequently, et cetera, so that they would be able to get into the long-term memory and you'd also be able to retrieve that more easily and apply it uh, in your daily life. The retrieval is kind of interesting. Retrieval is the third step. So you have en encoding, you have consolidation, and then you have retrieval. But retrieval is not just simply retrieving a photograph like we might think. You know, it's not like there's a JPEG image there and now we just need to retrieve it and we will be able to remember it in an exact detail in the vivid form that it was there in front of us. Retrieval is a reconstruction process where various parts of memory are retrieved and strung together in a logical manner that can vary from retrieval to retrieval. Therefore, the retrieved memory is not likely to be an exact accurate recall of the event, despite the fact that individuals often strongly believe that their memories are completely true. And uh, there have been a number of studies uh, in regards to this, um, some that I'll uh, talk about here in a minute. Various methods such as queuing can help. Receiving part of the information can help in retrieval of the rest of the information. For instance, hearing the first name of the forgotten person can help retrieve the last name, if you think about it uh, enough. 
being in the same emotional state as when the memory was acquired can also help in the retrieval process. And recognition memory is usually better than free recall memory. We could go into the, the difference between those two, but um, a recognition, of course, has to do with uh, in regards to faces, et cetera, uh, people uh, versus uh, animals, et cetera. Previous UCLA, UCLA research that found evidence that single brain cells are involved in memory can respond selectively to a wide variety of facial expressions and emotions. This is the research I was talking about where it's just one cell. Recently freed, he's a neurosurgeon there in UCLA, and his team found that single neurons in the human brain can differentiate between categories of visual images ranging from animals to photos of celebrities. Visual images can be generated in our mind's eye in the absence of actually looking at the image, he said. Our study reveals that the same brain cells that fire when a person looks at a picture of the Mona Lisa are in fact the same neurons that excite when the person is asked to imagine the Mona Lisa. And of course how he was able to do this as a neurosurgeon is he was doing studies on people that had epilepsy where he was trying to get rid of the epileptic focus by surgery. And as part of that, they agreed to allow themselves to be subjected to the stimulation of different individual neurons to see what would happen. Uh, these people can actually be pretty awake uh, when this happens, and they can actually uh, tell you what they're thinking of or what image is there. And uh, then, of course, they would do brainwave studies. So they'd have, have them imagine a picture of the Mona Lisa, and they would see that same area of the brain light up as when they were actually looking at the, uh, at the Mona Lisa. Scientists recorded the activity of 276 single brain cells known as neurons after asking patients to imagine images of faces, household objects, spatial layouts, cars, animal food, drawings, and photos of famous people and complex patterns shown to them earlier. The researchers found that those single neurons in certain areas of the brain selectively altered their firing rates depended, depending on the images imagined. And of course, this doesn't say, although it's stored in one neuron, it doesn't mean that the retrieval is going to be completely accurate. And of course, the retrieval process involves a lot more than one neuron there, and that's part of it, uh, what we're dealing with. So vital for memory, we've talked about nutrition. Physical exercise is vital for memory. Adequate sleep is, is particularly important. Being emotionally calm. There are studies showing that when you are in theta waves, uh, now that's different than alpha waves, you really don't, I mean, alpha waves can be okay with memory, uh, but it's not okay as far as putting the subset in. But as far as the best type of brain waves to be in when you are learning something new, it turns out theta waves are best. And theta waves are when you are emotionally calm. And so being in a state of emotional calmness is very uh, important. But it also tends to be enhanced by green surroundings. Uh, uh, for instance, uh, when you're outdoors and there's um, a hillside and you're able to you know, listen to an instructor in that setting, I think that's one of the reasons why Jesus liked being uh, out there on the hillside uh, in his teaching. There's something that his father may have uh, told him in regards to that. But there's, uh, of course, there's other benefits of the outdoors, the negative ions, you're getting the sunlight, you're getting things like that. The disadvantage of the outdoor world can be sometimes the, the distractions uh, can be significant, and that can adversely affect the working memory. 
And in the world we live in today, sometimes the distractions outdo the benefits of the theta waves, and so that's why indoors sometimes tends to be the best learning environment. Uh, but in reality, um, it would be good if we could actually do more of that outdoor learning uh, where there's a brook going by, where you're having that emotional calmness, kind of that restful attitude, but not sleepy attitude. Uh, and, uh, and that's uh, quite important. Uh, we talked about chunking as a memory enhancing technique. There's also something called structuring. The more structure we have in our environment, and the more structured we are, the better we tend to be in regards to memory. For instance, trying to place keys, notebooks, and other commonly used items in the same place each time you put them away reduces the chance that you will forget where they are. Uh, and that's uh, uh, part of the uh, structuring. And then another memory enhancement technique is associating. Studies show you're actually much uh, uh, more likely to remember two things than remembering one. And that's one of the reasons why even if you're trying to learn someone's name, if you can associate that name with something else connected with that person or even another person, you're much more likely to remember their name when you come across them again because you've remembered two things about them and not just one. And, uh, and so that association phenomena is critically uh, important also in regards to the consolidation. I'm going to discuss seven types of what I call normal memory. I shouldn't call them normal. It's what the world calls normal. I don't think they actually are normal, but because they occur so frequently in our fallen human condition, uh, I think uh, the world has considered them normal. Normal is often described what the apparent healthy population can do from time to time and be, quotes, a variant of normal. But we know that, quotes, the, where the average population is in their cholesterol level is not normal. Uh, even though it's, quotes, normal based on statistics, but it's quite abnormal in regards to its increased risk of disease. And uh, I think it's quite true. I talked about the IQ in the Roman Empire. I think it's uh, very clear when you look at the Bible times that people's memory, the working memory, had much more ability than just seven items that could be placed there. Uh, and their consolidation retrieval process was so good uh, that when Adam told um, Seth what took place, Seth remembered it in precise detail and could retrieve it to tell his sons, etc. And so you could go down generation after generation and nobody had to write anything down. It's one of the reasons why there wasn't a written language. The, the, the ability to, uh, I mean, the only reason to write something down is to remember it. Uh, and uh, if your memory is very good, you really don't need to write anything down. And so those individuals had such good memory processes that the transients and the things that we have problems with, they just didn't have problems. And finally, they got to the point where they were also starting to have problems, and that's when Moses recognized, you know, I know it real well. I've got it down, but I'm not sure the previous generations are going to have it down so well with the problems that are surfacing. And so that's when he started to write down uh, all the things that he had been told uh, and instructed. And of course, we have his, his book there in the book of uh, Genesis. Uh, the first, quotes normal memory problem is transience. Now, transience just means your tendency to forget facts or events over time. Individuals are mo most likely to forget soon after it is learned. As the time passes, the likelihood of forgetting increases. Some scientists regard it as beneficial because it, quotes, clears the brain of unused memory, making way for newer, more useful ones. I don't. I think this is a problem. But everyone uh, does experience transience of memory. 
uh, studies show. Even those with, quotes the photographic memories will experience transience at times. Individuals suffering from amnesia resulting from damage to the hippocampus and related structures have normal short-term memory but are unable to form new long-term memories uh, and they forget uh, the information soon after they learn it. That's the problem, of course, with Alzheimer's and other diseases of the hippocampus is that they don't have the ability to consolidate it and put it into um, that form. This was an interesting study. Squire and his colleagues used the O.J. Simpson murder trial verdict as a basis of their study of more than 200 persons. Now, one of the things that's out there is something called flash memory. Flash memory, for those of you that are old enough, you might remember where you were when you heard about President Kennedy's death, uh, for instance, and you can remember what you were doing at that time, et cetera. And so things that are kind of emotional and traumatic and meaningful, you might remember where you were when the, when the Challenger exploded, for instance, uh, and those type of things. And so the O.J. Simpson murder trial may not have been quite to that level, but there was enough hype going on in the nation uh, that uh, uh, people were very likely to remember where they were when they saw the verdict, what they heard about the verdict, what the verdict actually was, uh, et cetera. We found that marked changes in memory occurred between one and three years after the information was acquired. After 15 months, 50% of the recollections were highly accurate, and only 11% contained major distortions. And so these are people asking to recall in regards to uh, the verdict and what they were doing and other things about the verdict. After nearly three years, less than one-third of the recollections were highly accurate, and more than 40% contained major distortions. And so you can see what's happening uh, here. Actually, there were more people with major distortions about the event than actually what were true. And only a third of individuals actually recollected it highly accurately. Interestingly, individuals who were inaccurate often expressed high confidence in their inaccurate recollections. Uh, and so they actually expressed higher confidence in general than those who recollected it completely accurately. And so uh, that's something that you also tend to see in memory. Those that are absolutely firm, you know, I'm 100% sure. Uh, that, that term, when I hear people say that, uh, makes me cringe because I recognize that it's probably only about 30% chance that they're accurate uh, at that point. But, uh, but nonetheless, uh, the, the degree of confidence that they have uh, is, uh, is not related to how accurate it actually is. Uh, one of the ways of improving the transient memory is getting enough melatonin at night. And of course, this involves, and you know, if you were to go to bed at midnight, your melatonin production would start here, come up here, go up here, and go down. You'll actually decrease the area into the curve by almost 50% by going to bed at midnight versus 9 o'clock. And uh, this is one of the significant advantages of early to bed, early to rise. Brigham Young University did a study on their 40,000 students. They found one lifestyle factor more connected to GPA than any other and that was early to bed, early to rise. It wasn't total sleep time. It was how early they went to bed. Uh, and uh, that is, uh, is quite important. Uh, Ellen White told us about this some time ago. Sleep is worth far more before than after midnight. Two hours good sleep before 12 o'clock is worth more than four hours after 12 o'clock. And uh, in my studies, I changed after my freshman year of college in, uh, as a result of coming across this statement. And a significant difference uh, was made uh, from then on out in regards to my GPA. Uh, 
Then she says physicians should practice what they teach. Uh, they should teach that by studying after 9 o'clock, there is nothing gained but much lost. And of course, part of this is you're going to adversely affect your REM sleep. You're going to adversely affect that melatonin level, and what you think you're learning isn't going to necessarily uh, be there. Teach and practice at the time can be systematically employed, one duty after another attended to promptly, not allowed to lag so that midnight hours will not have to be employed in laborious studies. And so the efficiency in work and being able to get it done early, uh, et cetera, is also uh, uh, important. And of course, uh, even grandma taught early to bed, early to rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. And uh, of course, certainly the health part, there's evidence for that, and the wise part, uh, evidence for that. And of course, if you have those two, then obviously this becomes more possible. Also, studies are showing a relationship between calcium intake and intelligence, particularly among population groups. And uh, I recommend, just like our U.S. government recommends, 1,000 milligrams a day. And some foods that are great foods just aren't very high in it. Oatmeal, 19 milligrams, lentils, 38. Quinoa, mediumly high, 102. Rutabagas, 147. Mustard greens, 152. Baked beans, 154. Sesame seeds, 176. Blackstrap molasses, 176. Kale is this one, 179. But sesame seeds actually are a pretty good source, just two tablespoons, 176. And then your greens are going to be your highest source. Uh, turnip greens, 249. Uh, filberts or hazelnuts are the highest nut in it. Green soy is an excellent source of calcium. Just 10 dried figs, 269. Our figs are coming in in Oklahoma uh, in abundance and very tasty, great source of calcium. Whole milk, 290. Amaranth grain, 298. Skim milk, a little more, uh, 301. Collard greens, 357. By the way, will you absorb more calcium from skim milk or from turnip greens? You'll absorb more from turnip greens because greens are going to have much more lower phosphorus content. Uh, dairy is higher in phosphorus and you don't absorb as much of the calcium, although you'll still absorb some, uh, a fair amount. Carob is actually a good source, one cup, 358, and the highest source are lamb's quarters. Now that's not the hind leg of a small sheep, uh, <laughs> that is actually a weed, uh, and it's a quite a tender weed, but very high in calcium. and. Uh, one that is connected, but also you won't be able to utilize your calcium unless you have vitamin D on board. And both of those probably are related to melatonin. Studies show that if you don't have enough calcium or vitamin D in your diet, you won't make the melatonin, even if you go to bed early. Uh, you won't make near as much. And so uh, those things are connected with your ability to consolidate uh, those memories and put them into the long-term aspect of things. And I recommend as a general health thing that you know what your vitamin D level is. Get a vitamin D 25 hydroxy level. That'll tell us about your vitamin D stores and aim for uh, 50 uh, or higher. Then another important aspect, working with one's own hands in a real world 3D environment is imperative for full cognitive and intellectual development. Uh, this is something that's surfacing as another problem with IQ in the last generation. It's not just due to prematurity and other lifestyle factors, it's due to the fact that many kids today just know how to work in the 2D world. And what's the reason? 
With woodwork, metalwork, craft, music, or car mechanic classes dropped by many schools and children wanting to play computer games at home, the Western world is becoming a software instead of a screwdriver society. Research is showing that increasing time spent in the virtual world of computers is displacing hands-on play and hands-on learning in our kids. 3D learning allows young people to experience how the world works in practice, to gain an understanding of materials and processes, and to make informed judgments about uh, abstract concepts. And so uh, this is, there's two aspects. I'm kind of, I'm gonna be summarizing uh, another group of studies. Dr. Eric Sigmund is summarizing this uh, study uh, in regards to working with your hands. But studies show that your frontal lobe actually works far better if you work with your hands even in a mundane, efficient matter, manner for a couple hours a day. So in other words, you know, washing the dishes, um, you know, working with your hands out in the garden, uh, et cetera, enhances frontal lobe activity and function. And, uh, and of course, you get other advantages when you're working in a 3D world, you get that, those materials and processes there as well. Uh, this study I'm going to summarize. I just uh, noticed uh, the time is going by fast, but, um, well, let's not summarize. I think this is important. Compared with men and women who work 35 to 40 hours per week, those who worked 55 hours or more showed a greater decline in reasoning ability over five years. Workers who logged 55 plus hours per week scored lower on a vocabulary test at both the beginning and end of the study. They also showed a greater decline over time in a test of so-called fluid intelligence, which is related to a person's ability to reason and problem solve. Employees who worked long hours tend to have higher stress levels. They tended to sleep less. They tended to drink more than their counterparts who worked a standard work week. However, that did not fully explain their lower cognitive test performance, so it wasn't just the adverse sleep and the stress and the drinking. There seemed to be something about overwork itself uh, that produced problems uh, over time in regards to um, uh, that really comes down to the transient memory part. Absent-mindedness is the second one. This occurs as a result of the lack of close enough attention to what needs to be remembered. Individual may lose a set of keys simply because he or she did not focus on where they put it in the first place. Brain does not get a chance to encode the information securely. And so again, in a less structured environment where there's sensory overload, you're gonna be much more likely to have that absent-mindedness. Absent-mindedness also involves forgetting to do something at a prescribed time, like taking medicine or keeping an appointment because of lack of focus on things that can serve as cues or reminders. The third memory problem is blocking. Blocking is you know that you know it, but you just can't think of it. Someone asks you a question, the answer is right at the tip of your tongue. Uh, but you have an inability to retrieve that memory. And of course, this is just a retrieval problem. Uh, and it can be properly stored, but there's usually another memory similar to the one you're looking for that is so intrusive that it prevents you from accessing it. Or because you haven't accessed it in such a long time, you don't have those pathways clear. Uh, the other day, I sat down to play a piano piece that I hadn't played for 20 years that I had memorized uh, before. And uh, I could play the first measure, and then that was it. And I then replayed the first measure, and then the second and the third measure came to me. And then I started over again, and then more came to me. 
And within about uh, 30 minutes there, I was almost able to put the entire piece back, but, but the, what was happening is the circulation activity of the brain had to be worked and massaged a little bit before the rest of that could come out, uh, and those blocked memories could start to uh, become unblocked. Fortunately, research shows that people are able to retrieve about half of blocked memories within a minute if they just focus in on it like I was doing and have that area of the brain being massaged and worked at, uh, you're going to actually uh, uh, be able to come through. A third memory problem is misattribution. Uh, misattribution is uh, remembering something accurately in part but misattributing some detail like the time, place, or person involved. That's right memory, wrong source would also be a so uh, another example of misattribution also occurs when you believe a thought you had was totally original when in fact it came from something you had previously read or heard but had forgotten about. Explaining cases of unintentional plagiarism in which a writer passes off some information as original when he or she actually read it somewhere before. So that's misattribution as well. The criminal justice system, misattribution on the part of an eyewitness can lead to the arrest and conviction of innocent individuals and it has done so, and unfortunately it tends to become more common with age. Another major problem is suggestibility. Suggestibility is a false memory that you develop because someone or something gives you some key information or a suggestion at the same time that you're trying to retrieve a memory, with the suggestion of fooling your mind into thinking it's a real memory. What would be an example of this? Imagine you saw someone fleeing from a car as its anti-theft alarm was blaring. You didn't get a good look at the thief, but another person on the street insisted that it was a man wearing an orange shirt. Later, when the police show you photos of possible suspects, you're confused until you see a man dressed in an orange shirt, then you point to him. And that was purely due to suggestibility. Uh, nothing to do with your actual uh, memory. And of course, the major problem that it can cause is in the a criminal justice system in young children. Suggestibility is the culprit in memories that adults have of incidents from their childhood that never really happened. Studies have demonstrated that many children experience it when asked to recollect alleged incidents of sexual abuse. Several studies with preschoolers indicate that suggestive questioning by the police or other adults can lead children to assert that certain events occurred when in fact they didn't. And uh, of course that can uh, be a problem as well. And then there's a problem of bias in regards to memory. Bias is the belief that memory works like a camera, recording what you learn with complete accuracy. And of course, that's a myth. Memory is filtered by personal biases, including experiences, beliefs, prior knowledge, and even the individual's mood at the moment affecting how these memories are encoded within the brain. The previous factors can also influence what information is actually called up when an individual attempts to recall a memory. Uh, study in regards to this. Most interesting examples of people's recollections are of their romantic relationships. In one study, couples that were dating were asked to evaluate themselves, their partners, and their relationships initially, and then two months later. During the second session, participants were asked to recall what they had said initially. The people whose feelings for their partners and their relationships had become more negative recalled their initial evaluations as more negative than they really were. On the other hand, people whose feelings for their partners and their relationships had become more loving recalled their initial evaluations as more positive than they really were. 
That's called bias, and that's why in many divorce proceedings you'll see a totally rewritten history of the marriage, uh, of things that were not really accurate in regards to what was happening at all, where the individual says, you know what, I never really did love you, et cetera. And, uh, and it was clear uh, to everyone's eyes, including the other spouse, that there was a loving relationship earlier on, uh, et cetera. And uh, that's how biased the memory can become. Then another problem can be persistence of traumatic events, negative feelings, and chronic fears. Uh, we sometimes call it, when it gets severe, PTSD. Those with depression tend to have it more so. Our, these people are especially prone to have persistent upsetting memories. Persistent negative memories can fuel a vicious cycle of increasing depression, while flashbacks, which are persistent intrusive memories of the traumatic event, are a core feature of the PTSD. Research has shown that persistent memories depend on the activation of those parts of the brain that respond to fear, anxiety, and emotionally charged information, particularly the amygdala. Many people learn to control persistent memories through therapy that helps the patient learn gradually to envision the traumatic incident without the intense fear, eventually lessening the PTSD symptoms, which is uh, one of the things we call, we use in cognitive behavioral therapy. Studies also show that if you have a traumatic event, you're much more likely to not go into PTSD if you record it as a journalist would and then just leave it aside instead of having to feel like you have to relive that uh, as well. And of course, uh, studies show if you have a closed memory, that's much more healthier than an open, unresolved memory. And uh, that's what this uh, study took a look at, a recent study in regards to PTSD. Uh, the people with open memory have more trips to the doctor, uh, et cetera. Well, uh, I realized that I talked, uh, what, what am I up, up to now? Two minutes. Okay. Yeah, I wasn't able to, uh, to get to all of the uh, uh, things. On, uh, what time is lunch? Oh, lunch is on your own. All right. Is there another seminar at 12 o'clock? There's no seminar at 12 o'clock. Okay. All right. What I'm going to recommend uh, is that anyone who desires to leave at this point, you are free to do so without any offense uh, to me or anybody else uh, here in the group. Uh, uh, but I am going to uh, finish off some of the information that I have here, and, uh, and that way you can at least uh, get what we have. Uh, there's an area of, of hypnosis. I'm just going to go through this briefly, but hypnosis decreases the frontal lobe ability uh, significantly. And one of the ways of hypnotizing is entertainment television. Entertainment television decreases interest in learning, reading, decrease in IQ stores, academic performance, discernment, increases daydreaming, decrease in creative ingenuity significantly. And this is study on adolescence. The more they watch TV, the lower their IQ, the lower they are in regards to having attention problems in school, not doing homework, being bored at school, not finishing high school, and hating school. 14-year-olds who added one more daily hour of TV doubled their risk of academic failure. The American Academy of Pediatrics has really come out on regards to this. They're having all the pediatricians put signs up, no TV, you know, like no smoking signs, et cetera. Uh, the studies are really conclusive in regards to the adverse effects of entertainment television, entertainment movies on the frontal lobe of the brain. Music can have its positive effect as well as its negative effect. The positive effect is primarily 
the traditional uh, classical type of music, producing a good frontal lobe response, large emotional response. It can help with memory. It's one of the reasons why uh, uh, words of scripture were to be put to music, uh, et cetera. It's very uh, important. But the upbeat music is not necessarily uplifting music when it comes to the frontal lobe or the memory. And a good uh, classical music has also been shown to uh, increase your creativity uh, significantly and also increase your happiness in general. Uh, by increasing your, uh, by producing a positive mood, this classical music will actually uh, increase your scores on remote associates task, a measure of creative thinking. When you're feeling happy, your attentional window is actually bigger. It's like looking through a big window versus a small window. And Alvin Toffler summarizes a number of studies. He's a media expert, secular media expert, that says constant stimulation of the senses, on the other hand, shuts down the analytical processes and ultimately shuts down the ability to face life rationally. So this, of course, involves MTV, the sensual images, uh, the syncopated rock and roll music, uh, all that type of stimulation will actually decrease your analytical process, lead to escape techniques that involve withdrawal, apathy, and rejection of disciplined thinking when faced with difficult duties and decisions. Of course, a brain is a lot like a muscle. If you don't use it, you're going to lose it. And uh, this is part of the problem in regards to uh, as we get older, our intellectual training. We're in school when you're younger. We're actually, we were to be in school for the rest of our lives. In fact, when we're in heaven, it's called the school of the hereafter. Uh, and uh, what happens is we insist our children memorize their memory verses and we're not memorizing ours. And, uh, and then we wonder why our memory ability is declining with age. It may not be so much age related, but it's due to the fact that we're not utilizing our brains in, uh, in the ways that many of our young people were utilizing them. And one of the ways of best uh, intellectual uh, training is the study of scripture and even the memorization of scripture. Uh, studies show it can take about three to six months of really working hard at it before it really starts to click, even for adults. And so uh, a lot of times they give up after the first week thinking their memory just isn't near as good as it used to be, but if they keep working that area, the hippocampus will grow just like a muscle will grow. Uh, and you'll have the ability to, uh, to actually um, uh, do that. Now let me talk a little bit about Alzheimer's. Imagine for a moment what it would be like to suddenly be transported into a foreign world where almost nothing was comprehensible. The people you talked to and the language they spoke, everything, uh, it was an unending stream of incomprehensible, sometimes frightening activity. For many people living with conditions such as Alzheimer's disease, this is a daily reality. And of course, this is where you get where you're stage seven Alzheimer's, where you can't understand what people are saying. You, you know, and of course, Alzheimer's patients always think, you know, the most likely time when this is to happen when you don't have Alzheimer's is when you're traveling. You don't know the people. Sometimes it's a different language. You're traveling overseas, et cetera. And so Alzheimer's patients have this tendency to think they're always traveling and they need to go somewhere. Because uh, you know, when you're traveling, you're in an airport and you can't stay there for very long, et cetera. And so uh, to even help the Alzheimer's patients, you kind of need to get into their world uh, and recognize what that is. And then you can be a lot uh, better in working with them. Unfortunately, Alzheimer's patients are put into a world where there's virtually no stimulation, 
uh, and they're just looking at monochromatic walls, et cetera, and they're not having the music and they're not having other things, and of course they tend to deteriorate even more in that stage. Alzheimer's is a fatal disease that impairs memory, thinking, and behavior, primarily affecting the hippocampus, the brain's temporal lobe. About 12 million people, including 4 million Americans, have Alzheimer's. Researchers estimate that without a cure, the number of Alzheimer's cases will balloon to 22 million worldwide by 2025. Alzheimer's, there are seven stages, and you may be in stage one or two. No, I mean, seriously, studies show that people themselves and their loved ones don't often recognize it till they're in stage five. So the first four stages are almost imperceptible uh, to particularly family members. And one of the reasons is when you start to lose your memory, particularly if you have a high degree of intelligence, you can cover that pretty well. Uh, and so they learn how to cover and they learn how to fake and they learn how to do whatever. And in reality, the memory is declining. That hippocampus is declining significantly. Uh, I would like you to try to um, uh, say, or not actually say, but to spell the word world backwards to yourself. And uh, if you can't spell that backwards accurately in 10 seconds, uh, you're in either stage one or stage two of dementia. Now, it may not be Alzheimer's. Uh, but uh, you may be in stage one or stage two, and that's why it's, it's very important to recognize that early and undergo the lifestyle um, treatments we're going to recommend, because studies show you can arrest it. You can't reverse it, but you can arrest it uh, to a great degree. And, uh, and in some cases, of course, it can be reversible. Uh, Alzheimer's, a lot of focus has been on the gene, and it's very clear if you have ApoE4, you have a marked increased risk of having Alzheimer's. 60% of people with Alzheimer's had ApoE4 compared to just 25% of people without uh, the disorder. Those who had the highest levels of ApoA and the gene ApoE4 were more likely to have Alzheimer's than those with lower levels. And interestingly, those people over age 80 who did not carry the ApoE4 gene actually were less likely to develop Alzheimer's disease if they had high blood levels of ApoA. And it has to do with the genetic uh, processing that's there. But memory loss is not always due to Alzheimer's and it's not always due to the gene. One of the interesting things is why do some people with the gene never develop it, even with on both sides of the parents? About 80% chance you're gonna develop Alzheimer's if you have both ApoE4 alleles. But there's 20% of individuals who don't. And why is it that some people without any of the gene develop it as well? It's a, the, what is underlying this is a multifactorial disease. But this is one encouraging thing. If you couldn't spell world backwards accurately, or you're not sure whether you spelled it accurately or not, and by the way, if you are sure that you spelled it accurately backwards, I would still doubt it uh, in some <laughs> individuals. Uh, just because of what I stated earlier, when you're very firm that you're right in your memory, uh, you may not always be right. But uh, in a study of 785 patients with memory problems, only 43% had Alzheimer's. 20% of patients, the primary cause of memory trouble was reversible. 35% had a treatable condition that was the secondary cause of memory, such as hypertension or depression or B12 deficiency or thyroid disease. And so if you have dementia, don't assume it's Alzheimer's. Uh, get it checked out. Uh, these are studies that show an increased risk of Alzheimer's pessimism. Those with high scores on pessimism have a 30% uh, increased risk of dementia 30 years later. 
So your pessimism now can adversely affect your brain throughout your life. High scores on pessimism and anxiety had a 40% higher risk. The higher the scores, the higher the risk. Hypertension is critically important. When I have a patient with dementia, I want to make sure their blood pressure is controlled to less than 120 over 80. It is crucial that that take place. Studies show that if it's not controlled to 120 over 80, particularly by lifestyle means, your dementia is going to progress. And hypertension is one of the most um, studied things that produces a decline in your mental power, a decline in your memory, decline in frontal lobe uh, ability over time, uh, et cetera. And um, uh, this study, they were given several three-minute experimental tasks to, de to design to provoke negative emotions. Greater blood pressure reactivity to these tasks was associated with lower performance on tests of memory and mental performance. So if your blood pressure goes up just when you're in the doctor's office, you're still at risk. Uh, studies show that if anxiety causes your blood pressure to go up, you're at risk, et cetera. And so don't just think, well, I've got white coat hypertension and I'm not really at risk. No, those studies show you are uh, at risk. Staying active into old age is important. Walking, gardening, uh, particularly after 65, seems to help ward off dementia. In later life, active effort with a lot of variety during your leisure time may have a big influence on reducing your chances of getting dementia. Uh, physical activity appeared to help only the aging minds of people who weren't genetically predisposed to developing dementia, however. If you had both APOE4 alleles, exercise did not help in this study. Uh, and uh, it wasn't a strong enough force to, to uh, counteract the genetic force, but if you don't have the APOE4 allele, it is very um, helpful. Studies show antioxidants are important. Those who drink the most fruit and vegetable juice have a fourfold lower risk of developing Alzheimer's than people who drink uh, little or none. This was University of South Florida, not too far away from here. And then studies are also being done on N-acetylcysteine. That's an amino acid that's a potent antioxidant. You can get an expensive pill that's a prescription called serifolin NAC that has B12 folate and this antioxidant. Um, and that's, what, 60 or $70 a month. But you can actually get it over the counter. It's, it's sold in health food stores. Of course, it's in food like aloe vera and some glycoprotein foods, but it is, um, you can get it in supplemental form for dirt cheap uh, as just N-acetylcysteine. And studies show you'll get a lot better benefit by 2,400 milligrams a day. It helps in a number of conditions, including anxiety, OCD, and it also helps to prevent the free radical damage of uh, progressive dementias uh, as well to some extent. So we recommend NAC since it's so cheap and effective, we recommend NAC for our early dementia patients uh, as being quite helpful in uh, preventing it uh, from occurring uh, or occurring more rapidly. Also high cholesterol and getting your weight down is very important. And we've had individuals, we have an individual I'm seeing in my office right now. Nine years ago, I diagnosed her with Alzheimer's. There's no question that she has it. The neurologists all agreed as well. Uh, she had all of the telltale signs. And we got her cholesterol down to 100 plus her age or less. We got her blood pressure less than 120 over 80. We put her on the type of B12 that's most important, which is hydroxycobalamin. Uh, we made sure her folate levels were up, uh, which, uh, which are also critically important. And uh, uh, we put her on uh, NAC and the type of omega-3 that we've talked about. 
And so it's quite a bit, but uh, cheap things, not very expensive uh, to control all of this. And she has not progressed in nine years. She came in with stage five to six Alzheimer's. Uh, and um, she has not progressed at all in nine years. Still able to live independently, uh, even, et cetera. But her memory is, hasn't, it's not like it's improved, uh, but it has stayed the same so that she, um, she has not uh, gone, gotten uh, worse. And that's the, the critical thing. What adversely affects the heart affects the brain. Uh, and this is why high cholesterol strongly developed to the uh, dementia later in life. Dr. Rachel Whitmer says this as well, what's bad for the heart is also bad for the brain. And so a CHIP program will actually help the dementia uh, part. Uh, diabetes also adversely affects the brain. And of course, uh, the high blood sugars after meals can also uh, pay its toll. And getting that weight down can be critically important. Vitamin K is also important. Uh, Alzheimer's and dementia patients are, are, tend to be quite low in vitamin K. This is American Diabetic Association, December of 2007. These are foods that are higher in vitamin K. Brussels sprouts, mustard greens, beet greens, collards. Anyone want to know the highest source? That's no, not, not turnip grains. Uh, spinach is higher yet, but the highest is vitamin kale. Uh, or vitamin K, it's easy to remember that way, and uh, uh, very important in regards to mental health. Also, the B vitamin choline was recently classified as an essential nutrient for humans. Of course, this is where the medications for Alzheimer's are centering in on, is the choline aspect of things, or acetylcholine. You can get choline in food, and uh, in light of these findings, choline plays a crucial role in cognitive development, and both pregnant and nursing women, uh, it's important for them to get enough for the brains of their developing fetus. And women who are not getting 425 milligrams of the vitamin daily uh, have uh, problems. And uh, for pregnant women, we recommend 450. Value of nursing women at 550. Vitamin plays crucial roles in various processes related to learning and memory, among other things. Choline appears to stimulate cell division in the developing brain. Now, it's also been used as a supplement if you have Alzheimer's. Studies show if you have stage five to six Alzheimer's, it's not going to help um, in the supplemental form. But it can uh, potentially help the progression. But if you have dementia due to other causes besides Alzheimer's, it's very helpful. And so uh, if it's non-Alzheimer's dementia, we recommend choline or co what we call cognitive impairment uh, can be quite uh, helpful. And of course, you can get it in supplement or you can get it in food. Um, wheat tends to be one of the highest sources of betaine and choline together. Both of those are critically important. Spinach comes out pretty good there as well. And, uh, and soy has some as well. But wheat bread is going to be uh, one of your highest sources. And then obesity, this great rise in obesity has also been linked to dementia. In men, the likelihood of dementia rises linearly as your body mass index increases above 20. And this is the new data, BMI of 20, which is, would be thought of as lean today or maybe even a little too thin compared to the average individual. If you're lean and you're a non-smoker, you have the lowest risk of developing dementia. And if your BMI is 30, which you're not even classified as obese until you're 30, 29.9, you're, you're not obese, your quote's overweight, they have a two and a half times greater risk for developing it. 
Then uh, the Mediterranean diet seems to be helpful, particularly due to its protective effect of the monounsaturated fats in age-related cognitive decline. Now, you don't need much, but uh, a little bit is helpful every day. This is where olives come in to be helpful, avocado, pumpkin seeds, hazelnuts, and the top three sources are pecans, almonds, and macadamias are number one as far as the monounsaturated fat is concerned. Breakfast is critically important to have protein, carbs, and um, uh, fat in it as well. American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. Your memory tests are far better by eating a regular breakfast. And then we talked about high folate also seems to help protect against Alzheimer's. By the way, folate can't be um, patented either. The one drug company got around that and they put a methyl group on it. And since the methyl group isn't in nature, um, it is something that could be patented. And the methyl group work, works pretty well the same as the folate. But because they put the methyl group on it and they did the studies on it, they're charging well over $150 a month for the prescribed, quotes, drug called Deplin, which is really nothing but folate. And people are using it for depression, for memory decline, et cetera. And all they would have to do is get their 1,000 micrograms of folate a day uh, from the, uh, from the uh, food uh, in general. Uh, this was a study of those uh, average age of 70 years old. Folate intake and its relative risk of dementia are adversely related. Vitamin E can also be helpful. And these are the foods that are going to be higher in folate. Parsnips, orange juice, peanuts, mustard greens, spinach comes out on pretty well on top, navy beans, okra, lentils, and the highest source, black-eyed peas. And of course, these sources are not very good. Steak, uh, you need, you know, as I mentioned, 1,000 micrograms a day is what we recommend. The U.S. government recommends 400, but 1,000, you do better. And then just indicating it's never too late to try to avoid dementia. Teen IQ and activity is tied to later dementia risk. Persons who are more active in high school and who had higher IQ scores in high school, less likely to have mild memory and thinking problems when they get older. Conversely, those who are lower on the IQ continuum participate in fewer activities in high school at a higher risk of cognitive decline. And what the studies are showing is you can still run into dementia even though you have high IQ but it's not as um, easily recognizable because you have a lot more to lose. Um, and studies show that as a result of a lot more to lose, it's a slower pathway, et cetera, until you uh, actually get to stage five. And that's one of the advantages of starting out with that high IQ. Then we also know of a bone-brain connection. Whatever helps the bone seems to help the brain. And uh, when we increase the bone mineral density, it, it decreases the chance of Alzheimer's. L women with the lowest bone mineral density have twice the risk of developing Alzheimer's disease and dementia, despite their age, smoking, estrogen use, et cetera. And of course, this underlines what might be one of the benefits of estrogen therapy if you are at low risk for estrogen uh, therapy. So in summary, improving your memory, uh, getting attention to detail, being on that healthy lifestyle, remembering a lifestyle that's going to enhance melatonin, exercising the brain. I didn't show you the studies on daydreaming. The more daydreaming you do, the more likely you are to develop dementia. The opposite of creative ingenuity. Memorizing scripture is important and other things. Participate in exercises of truth and logic. And remember the new covenant 
was to put my laws into their hearts, in their mind, and to do what in their hearts? Why, why write them? So that you can remember them. And so re- memory is actually as part of that new covenant uh, uh, relationship. And of course, it's kind of interesting. There's only one commandment that begins with the word remember. It's a sign of a new covenant Christian that you're actually a Sabbath keeper. I'll close with three final quotes, one from the book of Proverbs, for wisdom is better than what? If you have a chance of enhancing your brain or enhancing your wallet, choose the brain every time. All the things that may be desired are not to be compared to it, he says, wisdom. And then Alan White says, be determined to become as useful and efficient as God calls you to be. Be thorough and faithful in whatever you undertake. Procure every advantage within your reach for strengthening the intellect. And then she says this, the Lord has given man capacity for continual improvement and has granted him all possible aid in the work. Through the provisions of divine grace, we may attain almost to the excellence of angels. That is the, uh, uh, really, what the Lord has in mind for each one of us. And as a result of coming to this program today, you've entered the largest room in the world, the Room for Improvement. And uh, I would encourage you to think of your own lifestyle, see what you can do to enhance uh, your brain, protect that brain, uh, and to improve it, uh, really, and undergo what the Lord said he wanted us to do, is, is to procure every advantage within our reach for strengthening the intellect. I'll uh, bow our heads and pray, and then I know some of you are going to have questions. Father in heaven, we thank you for creating us with these wonderful brains. They weigh just two and a half pounds, but yet the capacity for continual improvement that you've programmed in, and you've also given us all possible aid in the work through science and inspiration on how we can uh, function efficiently and effectively, even into old age. We thank you for creating us with these brains, and we also pray your spirit upon us that we may apply the knowledge that we have learned and be able to tactfully share it with others. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. All right, is there questions? Okay, Paula did bring some uh, uh, vitamins. This is the, uh, the V-Pure, the EPA, DHA that comes from the plant sources that's a whole lot more effective than the uh, Lovesa and cheaper. We have NAC here. We have the vitamin K- uh, K2. I didn't talk about K2. K2 is made by bacteria, also important. And then D, and the, the best form of B12, which is the detoxifying B12 hydroxycobalamin. So they're here. Okay. Yeah. We can just go over that later. Now, questions? Yes. Real quick about the health summit, Dr. Lilly. Okay, yes. Yeah, she also wanted me to tell you about the uh, mental health summit in February or the one in that, October. First of all, we'll talk about the 10 day program coming in October. That is October. Um, okay, this, this October we have a mental peak performance program that's residential in Oklahoma. Um, that at the Lifestyle Center, October 7 through 18, for, for anyone interested. And we also have a mental health summit where we're going to have speakers from all over the nation talking about mental health, also its relationship to depression, but other mental health things. This is going to be held at a very nice hotel in Dallas, February 23 through 27, 2011. 
Can we find this online? It will be. Yes. So February 23 to 27, if you're interested in a lot more information, we are only, yeah, obviously we're limited today in that, but if you're interested in really uh, getting more information and becoming an instructor or just for your own personal benefit, we do have a whole mental health summit. Yeah. Uh, February 23 to 27, we'll have some of the clinical, uh, prominent clinical psychologists and others from uh, around the nation uh, coming to help you with that summit. All right, question. All right, what if you're pres uh, concerned about the uh, animal products and you prescribe megadoses of vitamin D? M most of the megadoses are not animal-based. Most of them are plant-based. If you get a prescription vitamin D, it's going to be ergocalciferol, which is plant-based, 50,000 units. That's how it comes in the, uh, in the pharmacy. And, uh, and that's going to be... Well, that's, uh, that's, in the, uh, that, that's the pill. The, the vitamin uh, D2 um, uh, pill. Now, uh, you can, vitamin D3 can be animal-based, but it's primarily, primarily is animal-based. You can get a plant-based D3. Uh, we recommend the D2. It's less toxic, uh, and you know it's plant-based uh, in general, uh, and it's also highly effective. The only time we would recommend D3 is if, uh, over D2, is if you have renal failure. If you have kidney failure, you're not able to convert it to the active form. And so that's what we'd recommend, the, the plant-based D3. Yes, question here. Yeah, well, yeah, I probably should take that off of there. Canned, you're able to pack in more spinach, essentially, for the cup. So that's why it came out on top on the Escher group. But, yeah, whether it's canned or raw or, or fresh or other ways, it's, uh, we still recommend it. Yes. Yeah, the, the question is, when the greenery goes away, as far as a learning environment, would it be helpful to have some greenery in your home? There is evidence that it would be, you know, like plants, for instance, um, that are in the home can help you out a couple of ways. They, they're producing oxygen, uh, but they're also, uh, and they might produce some negative ions, and just that green color seems to be beneficial. Um, I talked about um, uh, exercise as well. Exercise can be helpful in just five minutes if you're doing green exercise, uh, studies have shown. It benefits you in more ways than one by walking in a park or et cetera. So, uh, and then we talked about the advantage of green as far as learning. Um, yeah, I think there probably would be some advantage of having that around, whether it's in a plant, uh, a live plant, which would be better, uh, or in other ways. Yes. Well, are there supplements that we would recommend for those that are otherwise healthy? Uh, you know, I, I think it's pretty clear based on a number of studies, and you know, again, I'm gonna be producing my own set of bias after reviewing the medical literature, but I think it's pretty clear that a plant-based vegetarian diet is the healthiest diet. 
However, there are two areas of concern about that diet. One is uh, B12. Some people will lower their B12 over time. Another area of concern is vitamin K2. K1 is present in those things. K2 is made by bacteria just like B12 is made. And K2 is uh, not very easy to find in the, um, the plant-based uh, group. So those would be two supplements if you're on a totally plant-based vegetarian diet to be safe if you don't have a way of measuring that in your bloodstream like I do, um, being the head of a laboratory. Um, then uh, it would be safe, uh, you know, it's not going to be dangerous for you to take those two supplements. Vitamin K2, we talked about the brain, it's also very important in bone. Uh, for those who are plant-based vegetarians and have osteoporosis, we recommend, as long as they don't have atrial fibrillation and need to be on Coumadin, we recommend K2 to them and they build up their bone mineral density quickly within a year. Um, and so uh, that's a, a critical part for, uh, for that. Now, some people would not be getting enough omega-3 in their diet. The rest depends on what their diet actually is. So we might recommend omega-3 if they're having memory issues or other issues. We might recommend some other things like NAC, which is going to be harmless, the omega-3, the B-Pure, uh, something like that. Those are most common ones. And if you're not getting sun exposure, D2, because a lot of people are, have indoor jobs and they don't get direct sun. And because I don't, I have an indoor job most of the time, I actually take uh, a D2 supplement myself on days that I'm not getting the adequate sunlight. Yes? Well, uh, if you're taking Coumadin, it restricts your ability to take it in supplemental form because it counteracts the Coumadin. And so uh, what we recommend for those who are taking Coumadin is they eat their green vegetables consistently and just get it from there and then they get their, they're going to need to take more Coumadin to counteract that part of things. Uh, and then, um, but we can take them, I mean, we have plant-based vegetarians eat a lot of greens and they might take 15 milligrams of Coumadin a day and that's how much they need in order to keep their blood thin enough to develop, to not develop that blood clot that will cause them a stroke due to their atrial fibrillation. Yeah, I, I don't come to that recommendation yet, but yes, it is true. Coumadin probably has more problems over the fact that, that it's just a blood thinner because of some other uh, counter vitamin K activity. So um, uh, where uh, I think the research is too, um, too sparse in that area to be recommending K supplementation with Coumadin. Most experts are not recommending that at this point in time. Now, the question is K2 maybe, because K1 counteracts Coumadin more than K2. So maybe K2, we could recommend supplements in the future, but I'm not ready to do that yet. Yes? Uh, yes, uh, the question is about schizophrenia, bipolar. Is there any way of helping that um, uh, and possibly getting off their medication? Uh, we don't make the claims that we do for depression. 90% of people with depression will be able to get off their medicine. OCD, about 90% will. Uh, bipolar and schizophrenia, maybe up to 50%, but what can happen with lifestyle measures, even if they're not able to get off their medicine, is that they can be a whole lot better controlled with enough omega-3 on board. The bipolar just need more omega-3. Same with schizophrenia. They'll need about 9,000 milligrams of omega-3 a day 
which is a higher dose, and that really helps them uh, significantly. Um, the NAC part can be helpful as well. So there are a lot of things that can help, even the bipolar and schizophrenia, but because those conditions tend to be due to uh, some permanent scarring in the brain, um, uh, we can't make the claim that all people will be able to get off their medication. There's some that are going to need to be on their medicine for life. Yes? Yeah, now, yeah, he's bringing up something that has been shown in the medical literature that had, um, there was one surfer that was highlighted in Hawaii um, who uh, didn't have vitamin D levels 50 or greater. He had about 25, but yet he was surfing almost every day in Hawaii. And what they're looking at is some people have a defect in regards to their metabolism of vitamin D. Uh, and it seems to be genetically based. However, most people don't fall into that category. Most, most people that are getting direct sun and you have to be getting direct sun, like between 11 o'clock in the morning and 2 o'clock in the afternoon on exposed surfaces are going to get plenty of vitamin D. I mean, if you, if you go out on the beach in, um, you know, in East Florida today um, and you're out there for an hour, you'll get 10,000, the equivalent of 10,000 units of vitamin D uh, being out there. But there are some people with genetic defects um, that are not able to metabolize, and that's not been greatly explained as to why they're not and what the problem is, but we know vitamin D supplements help them uh, significantly. So those would be some people. That's why it's important to know your vitamin D. Just like some people genetically, their livers produce high cholesterol even though they're total vegetarians, and they might need to be on something to lower their cholesterol. There are some people genetically that have vitamin D issues in regards to how they're metabolizing it from the sun. Yes. Yeah, UV tanning lights are not a, um, a, not a reliable method. Uh, they don't tend to go deep enough. Um, uh, you know, they're, they're trying to filter out the ultraviolet, and as a result of filtering out the ultraviolet, that's the area of sun exposure where you tend to make more of the vitamin D. Uh, and so they're not a reliable way of getting your vitamin D up. Yes? What are your thoughts about red rice yeast as it relates to the cholesterol? Red rice yeast extract can lower cholesterol in a similar manner to the statin drugs. And so, uh, yes, that's a supplement that can lower your cholesterol if you have a high, high cholesterol. Yes? Yeah, daydreaming is what happens when you are in line at a grocery store and um, they're just, or you're in a traffic jam, uh, or you're, you know, uh, sitting, waiting for a lecture to start, et cetera. And studies show that you, um, you have a, a high tendency to just daydream when you're in, you're, when you're in those states. What those studies are showing is instead of daydreaming, if you take out a card and trying to start memorizing scripture or having your mind on something that's actually active, it protects you later on from dementia. And it's that those daydreaming phases, uh, taking a look at PET scans, et cetera, it's the daydreaming areas. Of course, you're utilizing your memory bank some to daydream, but it is that daydreaming process itself that seems to help uh, bring about the plaques of Alzheimer's disease. Uh, in at least some people. And, uh, and so we recommend <clears throat> that if you're awake and you're in a line, 
uh, keep your mind active and, uh, and work on that memorization part, like memorizing scripture or something like that, and that will be very helpful. Yes? Nutritional yeast flakes, not all of them are reliable B12. There's only one nutritional yeast flake, and, and Paul would probably be able to get you the number, you know, they, they number them, uh, that actually has B12. The rest of them do not. And uh, unless you happen to get that, um, uh, that yeast flake, you're not going to get adequate B12. I still recommend um, the, the best source of being B12, hydroxycobalamin, is because the cyanide molecule isn't there. The red yeast flake doesn't have the hydroxycobalamin. It's going to have your cyanocobalamin in it. So uh, the hydroxycobalamin has some other advantages. In fact, in the detoxifying world, the toxicologists all over this nation, they're board-certified toxicologists, they're all talking about hydroxy B12 as being critically important in our toxic world, et cetera. And, uh, and that's why we recommend um, uh, that form. And we've had clinical responses to that in, in ways that you won't get with the cyanocobalamin. And it's cheap. Um, and effective, and you can chew it, put it under your tongue. It's best to actually, if you're getting B12 in a regular vitamin that you're not chewing, you're probably not getting appreciable B12. You actually have to chew it to help the absorption process and the activation. Or if you have pernicious anemia and can't absorb it, you need to put it under your tongue. Chew it and put it under your tongue and get it that way. Well, you've been a very attentive group, and uh, I wish you the best of health of body, mind, and soul. Thank you. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.